Gaza burned and billowed as Israeli airstrikes hit cars. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at the Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're looking at this week. Gaza under assault, bloodshed at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Social media is the place to go for the coverage of this story, except when the platforms take issue with what's being posted. Thailand used to be a safe haven for journalists on the run from Myanmar. Those days are gone. Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire, do they look familiar? We examine the stereotyping of black women on screen. And cartoon propaganda, Turkish style. That, to the delight of the president's critics, comes back to bite the Erdogan government. What is currently taking place across the occupied territories is both familiar and unlike anything we've seen in recent times. The Israeli settler violence is not new, nor are the forced evictions of Palestinians from their homes to make way for Israelis the police brutality on protesters and worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Israeli military's bombing of Gaza in response to rocket fire that's coming from the other direction. But in other ways, this escalation is distinct, in large part because of social media. Palestinians have been documenting every stage of this story, starting with the Israeli police cracking down on protesters in East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah, a neighborhood where Palestinians are on the verge of being forced out. Social media companies removed many of those posts, even suspended dozens of accounts. Content moderators, too easily triggered, have since been overtaken by events. And footage filmed by Gazans under attack has mobilized Palestinians in a way that has not been seen in years within the occupied territories and Israel itself. Our starting point this week is Gaza City. The last thing that the two million Palestinians living in Gaza want to see on their social media feeds is that Gaza is trending. Because when Gaza is trending, it usually means the Israelis are bombing. And civilians are getting killed. Even if it's the last week of Ramadan during a pandemic. When Gaza is trending, and the Israeli army says it's out to destroy military targets only, residential tower blocks are reduced to rubble. Schools and media organizations get hit. And Palestinians find themselves telling their story on social media to elements of the global media that don't seem or want to understand. You've had the video of a little boy who lost his father. <laughs> Another video was of the bombing on the residential building in Beit Hanun. And we just saw it collapse completely flat. I think what it does is it showcases Israel's brutality. For me, the, the two images that stick in mind, one of is the block of flats in, in Gaza that collapsed. And also the, the picture inside Israel of houses demolished and people with, covered with blood. And we see more and more pictures. 
What social media does is that it allows us to craft our own narrative, to select our words, to select our images based on what we see fit, rather what an editor sees fit, or rather what a journalist sees fit. The destruction of civilian property which is filmed and captured. This is all evidence that's being collected for what one day will probably be war crime trials at the International Criminal Court. Uh, so there's a new dimension to the uh, social media testimonies, which are politically very important. The initial fuse for this escalation was lit not in Gaza, but in East Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah a longtime Arab neighborhood where Palestinians are now facing expulsion from their homes by yet more Jewish Israelis. Armed settlers confronted Palestinians on their doorsteps. The demonstrations that took place and the crackdown by Israeli security forces led to what many news organizations still call clashes. They were more like mismatches. Israeli police used tear gas, stun grenades, and rubber-tipped bullets against unarmed protesters, more than 600 of whom were injured, compared to roughly 20 police. Some of the shooting took place in the Al-Aqsa Mosque itself and provoked Hamas in Gaza to launch rockets into Israel. Many protesters, armed with nothing more than their phones, used them to document the Sheikh Jarrah story on social media, particularly on Instagram. We have seen the video of an Israeli, a Jewish settler in the backyard of a Palestinian family. You are stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. And that video, which has made so many rounds, is a testament again to the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Other videos that went viral were of the Israeli settlers going around Sheikh Jarrah with their guns and their pistols as though they are in some video game of Counter-Strike. But they're actually shooting at people, Palestinians. This young woman, Maryam Afifi, who was arrested by Israeli police in Jerusalem. And as she was being handcuffed, she was imploring him um, if this is what he dreamt of being when he was a child. Maybe you have a family, you have kids. And it takes so much strength and bravery to be able to do that with the potential of being taken to a police station that is notorious for its torture of Palestinians. Social media is developing so quickly, so compared to the last round of hostilities on this scale in Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on TikTok, you name it. People have developed the skills of capturing the moment and also to make the message even stronger. As the Sheikh Jarrah story escalated and the images grew more difficult to watch, Twitter and Facebook started taking down content. Some was flagged as hate speech. Many accounts were blocked. Palestinians have seen this before. Big tech platforms deleting material that exposes Israeli human rights crimes. Often, those platforms are told to do so by the authorities, something Israel's justice minister boasted about publicly in 2016. 
לפני שנה השיתוף פעולה, הייתי אומרת, היה עומד על 50 אחוזים. 50 אחוזים ממה שביקשנו היה מוסר. היום פייסבוק מסירה כבר 95 אחוזים מה, מהתכנים שאנחנו מבקשים. Palestinians also know social media companies, mainly Facebook, which owns Instagram, have handed over some of their users' data to the Israeli government, leading to hundreds of arrests. So when Twitter and Instagram, which is headed by Adam Mosseri, an American Israeli, blamed their content takedowns on a technical bug, Palestinians weren't buying it. Here is the question. If your system targets only or disproportionately vulnerable communities at crucial and sensitive political times, at the peak of their activism, at the peak of the need to see and document human rights abuses, then you need to fix your system. If it was a technical bug and they fixed it, well, God bless them. Um, if it hasn't been fixed and this technical bug has permeated how uh, social media and other media provide imbalanced coverage of Palestine and Israel, uh, then it's a technical bug in their moral genes. News organizations are struggling to keep up with developments. Israeli ground troops moving onto the border with Gaza. Communal violence breaking out in multiple Israeli cities. Reports of attempted lynchings on both sides. Talk from the Israeli president of a looming civil war. There was a time, as recently as a year ago, that Palestinians could tune into Arabic-language news channels based in the Gulf and find reporting that would help redress at least some of the imbalanced coverage on Western media outlets. That is no longer the case. The Abraham Accords, normalization agreements between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, have tempered the coverage on some Gulf-based pan-Arab channels, like the Saudi-owned Al Arabiya and Sky News Arabia, which broadcasts out of the UAE. Their viewers are seeing output on Palestine that is more muted and sporadic than it used to be. That leaves Al Jazeera, whose coverage has been wall to wall. And it leaves Palestinians ever more reliant on social media. American big tech companies, bugs, biases, and all. The Palestinians have been geographically and politically fragmented for decades, and that is not by coincidence, it's by design. And social media has, in a way, reunited us Palestinians living in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Gaza, even Palestinians living in the diaspora, myself included. And this is one reason why we saw, for instance, demonstrations not just in Gaza and, and Jerusalem and the West Bank, but also in, in Haifa and Jaffa and Lid uh, inside Israel. But the fundamental balance of power on the ground, military and political, remains heavily in Israel's favor. And just like they're censoring Palestinians now, they're going to censor other struggles. As a Palestinian, I refuse the separation of our censorship from the censorship of other struggles. This is something that is problematic within these corporations themselves who are yet to respect digital rights. This is something that's much bigger than us. It's been more than 100 days now since Myanmar's new military rulers took power, and things are not getting any easier for journalists inside the country or out. 
Flo Phillips has been talking to some of them. Flo, let's start with how this story has moved beyond Myanmar's borders and into Thailand. Northern Thailand, to be precise, Richard. Last week, three Burmese journalists were arrested there. They work for an independent outlet, the Democratic Voice of Burma, or DVB. Now, DVB is a very popular TV and radio station that has been extensively covering the military coup, far too critical for the junta's liking. Back in March, the authorities banned DVB, forcing many of its journalists either into hiding or to flee across the border. The three reporters in question then set up a makeshift studio in Thailand to continue their work, but a neighbour reported unusual activity in the building. The Thai police entered, searched it and arrested the journalists for crossing the border illegally. What are the chances that the Thai authorities will now deport them back to Myanmar? It's hard to say because DVB does have a history of working in Thailand. Back in the early 2000s, when Myanmar was also under military rule, DVB did a lot of its work on the Thai side of the border, as did many Burmese journalists. And you'll remember from when we covered that story, Richard, that the Thai authorities were fine with it. But things are beginning to change. We spoke with the executive director of DVB, HN9, who says that the Burmese consulate in Chiang Mai has been pressuring the Thai authorities to deport the journalists, and they've even tried to visit the reporters in jail unsuccessfully. And one important thing to note, should these journalists get deported, it will be a violation of international law, the principle which protects asylum seekers who face persecution back home. If they are deported back to Myanmar, what kind of fate awaits them there? As you know, Richard, media workers are still being arrested and the crackdown on dissent there continues. We've been getting stories of journalists taken from their houses in the middle of the night and tortured. And this past week, a DBB reporter based in Yangon was sentenced to three years in jail, joining three of his colleagues already behind bars. So the situation is pretty bleak all round. Okay, thanks, Flo. This past week, the U.S. television network, NBC, announced it will not be broadcasting next year's Golden Globes Awards. As prestigious film and television awards go, the Globes are second only to the Oscars. NBC's reasoning, the group behind the Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, has persistently come up short on the issue of diversity. It is a problem that runs right through the industry, and people behind hashtags like Oscars So White have been demanding change. Despite some signs of progress, the roles offered to actors of color, particularly black women, are still often built around stereotypes, simplistic depictions, some dating back to the slave trade that somehow live on. So many black female artists have turned away from an industry dominated by white men to tell their own stories, complex, layered ones that Hollywood seems to have an aversion to. The Listening Post's Johanna Hoos now on the stereotyping of black women and the push for change in an industry where diversity and inclusion have been far too long in coming. Yes, Lord, got to get out. The Mammy. You tell me who you want done and I'll do the hell out of it. The Jezebel. Shut it up! You are such a big baby. And the Sapphire. Submissive, sexy, sassy. Three stereotypes of black women that return to our screens over and over again. The Mammy is probably the most familiar to people. It's usually a maid, heavy, taking care of the family. You is kind, you is smart, you is important. She is asexual, she doesn't have really a life of her own. She's really only there 
to support the family. And probably one of the most famous examples is Mammy from Gone with the Wind. Just hold on and suck it. Somebody who is always seeking out to put aside her own desires, her own needs for white families, white men, white women, white children. Meet Sugar Hill, sexiest, deadliest chicken town. The second stereotype is the Jezebel, and that's someone who's generally oversexed. Is mysterious. Her only power is in her body and in the influence she has over men. Unattainable. And then finally, the Sapphire character, I think that's seen in TV more often than anything else. Get some Kleenex, wipe your nose, cause it ain't that damn sad. The Sapphire is usually sharp tongue, manipulative woman who emasculates her husband. There was actually a character called Sapphire Stevens on Am the Amazon Andy show. And I guess you think you could cook, clean, and get along just fine all by yourself. I do. The representation of the angry black women. And that's kind of metamorphosized to today, where we just have sassy, angry black women who doesn't take anything from anybody. Caricatures of black women have been around in Western culture for centuries. They're rooted in the transatlantic slave trade when stereotypes were used to commodify black bodies and justify slavery. These characters were popularized in what Americans called minstrel shows, comedic performances in which white actors in blackface lampoon black people just to entertain other whites. By the early 1900s, minstrel shows were fading in popularity, but the stereotypes endured. They made the jump to film, then electronic media, and they have survived to this day. Throughout history, more often than not, black women are depicted in reductive ways that denies the different experiences and emotions that are a part of their life. Aunt Jemima. Perfect pancakes in 10 shakes. Depictions of black women in the media throughout time have been used to put forward ultimately oppressive ideologies. Generalizations are useful, I constantly say this, but they're also shortcuts. And it feeds into our own racist imagination. And we miss the realities, the full depth of black women's stories because you are essentializing black people. You're saying there is no complexity beyond this. Well, it's gonna be no surprise that the audience and the creators alike are going to constantly think that we have represented black women in the way they are, when really what they've represented is just the same racist caricature over and over again. Stereotypes like the Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire have, however, evolved over time, reinvented in characters like the welfare queen and the sassy black friend. Oh, you looking for a sassy black friend? Oh, no, I didn't. Well, you got one now, girlfriend. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, there has been renewed pushback against this kind of racist imagery. Look, tin of Red Bull, yeah, pour half away, pull the rest up with vodka. That is me, sorted. These nails are digging in tonight. <laughs> I have ascribed to play the part of the, the welfare queen, and my mom is playing the mammy. And um, it's two, like, stereotypes together um, with no, like, deep 
interrogation as to why. It's £10 to get in and drinks cost a fortune. We just like pop up as like best friends of like our white leads. I remember being on set and almost being asked to give us more sass, give us more attitude. I watched this back and um, I absolutely was complicit in the propaganda of the anti-blackness. I advocated anti-black like rhetoric for the sake of capitalism and for the sake of a credit. Cyrus. For black actors, caricatures are no longer the only parts out there. TV shows like Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder and Insecure feature layered black women in their leading roles. But such complex, multi-dimensional characters are the exception, while stereotypes or token black roles remain the rule. A fact that is at least partly explained by a lack of diversity behind the camera, at the writing desk and in the director's chair. One of the problems is that there just really aren't a lot of people of color who are making decisions, who are writing, who are producing, right? It's like, no job. No man. All of this sounds bad, but it's actually really good. It's good vibes all When you think about a show like Insecure on HBO, Issa Rae does that because she is a black woman. She has black writers, black producers, and so she makes it her business to make sure that the full story is told, the complex parts, that's reality. And we just don't see a lot of that on TV or in film. The fact that the majority of casting directors are white and predominantly male absolutely adds to the um, further sort of marginalization of black bodies and absolutely contributes to the misrepresentation of who we are and our stories. What the hell is Bob Marley salted cod? Give me vegetables, please. <laughs> they just call it a different name, man. No, I'm not eating Jamaican food made by English people. And so I think we're turning to the internet because the internet allows us to um, commune, mobilize, stabilize, um, educate, decolonize, um, and free ourselves from the sort of the, the dominance that is like the white, the white culture. The internet has offered black artists a space to tell their own stories, and they have proven successful. Web series like Aki and Saltfish and Issa Rae's Awkward Black Girl amassed large followings online, and both shows were eventually picked up by big broadcasters. But it's taken a lot of clicks and likes for TV executives to acknowledge that black women's stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, are worthy of their screen time. A lot of major networks consider it a risk to tell black stories because they're not always sure that the mainstream will receive them well. Unfortunately, black creators are in a position of having to prove over and over again that our stories are worth telling. Stop trying to engulf my nose with your... Content created by black women who are incredibly talented but who've often been overlooked by industry is engaging, it's interesting, it's dynamic. And also because it typically doesn't conform to the conventions of industry that have been very narrow and prescriptive, it's more exciting in many ways than what is offered in the mainstream. The white world, if you will, tells its stories like they are global stories. Whereas when black people tell their stories, those stories are only stories about those people. 
I think that that is something that people really need to question because the way white stories are told, the rest of us are supposed to find our humanity in those stories. Why can't white people find their humanity in our stories as well? And finally, following on from the story that we did last week on President Erdogan's attempts via YouTube to connect with the latest generation of Turkish voters, his ruling AK party has tried to use animation to do the same thing. It produced a cartoon about Turkey's leading opposition party, the CHP, called the Lie Production Center. The cartoon tells a story of a mad scientist and the machinery behind anti-government propaganda launched with much online fanfare and highlighted on the AK Party's official social media accounts, the video then crashed and burned. The government took an absolute hammering online from accounts that it cannot control, and the cartoon was deleted within 24 hours. Now, Erdogan's people say the cartoon had reached its intended audience. But what were they going to say? That it backfired on them? We managed to find a copy of it that's still making the rounds online, so take a look for yourself. We'll see you next time, here at The Listening Post. Bu ne? Bu yalan jeneratörü. Herhangi bir konu giriyorsunuz, onunla ilgili yalan üretiyor. Harika. Hı? Bir konu söyleyeyim mesela. Ee, külliye meselesi. Külliye. Hafif, orta karar, kuyruklu. Ee, bilmem, hafifle başlayalım. Güzel seçim. Külliyede altın klozet var. Ee, bu baya hafif oldu, değil mi? Aynen. O zaman... Külliyede musluklardan süt akıyor. Yani fena değil gibi ama... Daha bomba bir şey yok mu? O zaman sizi... insafsız yalan aracıyla tanıştırayım. Geçenlerde ambulans uçakta yeni doğan bir bebeği kurtardılar biliyorsunuz. Evet. Şimdi İyamız bakın onu nasıl çarpatacak. Ambulans uçaklar yandaşlar için kullanılıyor. Oo güzel. <gülüyor>